a couple of weeks ago. We started our summer series through the book of James. James uh, was the half-brother of Jesus. He wrote his book in about four, little 40 early 40s A.D. Keep in mind, Jesus was crucified in 30s, so this is pretty soon. James was the very first pastor of the Christian church. He's the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And it wasn't long the, the Jewish political forces put Jesus to death. They never did care much about the movement. Well, it wasn't long they were persecuting his followers, and many members of his church uh, had to scatter. And so James, pastor's heart, decides to minister to his church that's scattered out. And so he writes them this book of James, a small little book. But in the book of James, he's dealing with this issue of spiritual maturity. He wants a faith that works. James has no time, no breath for for hot air. He has no room for, for hypocrisy in the church. And so just as the church is getting started, just as they're getting formed, just as they're forming, he writes some instruction. And a couple of weeks ago, we noticed the very first portion of the book, he deals with trials. Now, they were going through lots of trials, and we're going to go through trials. We all will. But he said, if you're going to have spiritual maturity, if you're going to have a faith with works that works, you're going to have to, you're going to have to see trials through God's eyes and then respond accordingly. That's the, the first week. If you weren't here, you should get the CD or podcast it or something. Then last week, uh, next section, he said, now, if you're going to have be spiritually mature, if you're going to have a faith that works, you have to, this is a, a, a imperative, you have to see God's word, the Bible, through God's eyes. Why is it here? Why is it given to us? And then you need to respond accordingly. And today, he's going to deal with something else. And my guess is this, that it's kind of a surprise, I think. It was to me what he's putting on the table. I think for all of us, if we were to, to write out the top five, seven things that you got to know if you're going to be a believer, what James comes up with here is probably not going to make any of our lists. But James, the Holy Spirit, says, oh, no, this is has got the power to destroy your church. This is so subtle. It has the power to be there. You won't even see it. You won't even know it. But it will render your church incredibly ineffective. And so right into James chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me, James chapter 2, verse 1. He starts off, he says, my brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The the principle here is that a discriminating heart is not a disciple's heart. A discriminating heart is not a disciple's heart, right? This idea of partiality, what that is, what the word means, it it means to um, uh, receive from the face and what, what it our lingo, what it would mean is to take at face value. And so this partiality thing that James is talking about, this discrimination, is to, to take at face value and make a judgment based on it. Um, Swindoll gives an illustration that I think reflects this real well. He talks about way back when, when he was in Dallas, he was in school, and there was a young lawyer in Dallas. This is true story, supposed to be a true story. A uh, young lawyer, he worked at a, a law firm, and a Christian guy, but you know, he's a s- single guy, and he was just up and coming, and he was, uh, 
at Thanksgiving, the, the president of the law firm would give all of the lawyers a big old turkey, you know, and, and uh, he didn't like turkey, he didn't want a turkey, he was going to cook this big old thing, and what's he going to do with it? He, he didn't want it, but he wasn't in a position to tell the president that he didn't want this turkey. It was kind of a big pomp and circumstance thing. They, they came into the boardroom, and all the turkeys were there with the guy's names on it, and, and the president would, would bring the guy up and give him the turkey and thank him, and the guy was expected to thank the president, and no, 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 no. Well, well, what happened is, is his other lawyer friends realized that this young guy did not always trying to get rid of the turkey. And so what they did is they, they, they made a paper mache turkey. Right? And they weighted it down so it was just perfect weight and wrapped it up in brown paper. And then when, after the turkeys had been delivered into the, the boardroom, they snuck in and took his turkey out and put this paper mache one on with, the, with the, his name. So they go to this, this, this ceremony thing at the, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and the president calls them all up and calls this guy up and gives him his turkey and this guy's got this big old bird, not sure what to do with it. He's going, what do I do with this thing, God? He gets on the bus, he's getting ready to go home and he's sitting on this bus with this big old turkey in his lap. You know, what do I do? And all of a sudden this, this gentleman gets on the bus who's gone through some hard times, you can tell. And the guy sits down next to him and he's, they start a conversation and this gentleman says, you know, there's hard times and I've been out of work for a couple of months now and I'm trying to get a job and I was out today and couldn't find any and holidays are coming and not sure what to do and my family's all going to be real hungry. I'm not, that's not what I'm, and suddenly the lawyer thinks, I know what to do with this turkey. But he knows this man's probably a man of pride of some sort. It's not going to accept charity. And so he says, buddy, how much money do you got? The guy says, well, I've got about three bucks. The guy says, today's your lucky day. I want to sell you my turkey. Big old turkey. I'm going to sell it to you for three bucks. The guy says, oh, that's a great deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Takes the three bucks and gets off at the next stop. The, 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 the lawyer guy does and says, enjoy your Thanksgiving. Have a blast. Now, some spec- that was true. You can imagine some speculation at this point, though. The guy gets home. He says, oh, wife, kids, come. Let me tell you of how God has blessed us today, you know, and what God has done. And I was praying and wondering and what sure and, 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 and this nice man and this big turkey. And this is wonderful. And the lady's crying, oh, what a great thing. And then she goes and unwraps the paper off this turkey and some paper, mache, turkey. She, what are they thinking of this lawyer now? Oh, that monster. Who was it? How could this guy do this to people? What's he? Terrible thing. Well, the next day, the Monday, the, the lawyer guy goes back to work, and his uh, other lawyers are kind of looking to see how his Thanksgiving went. And they ask him, how did your Thanksgiving go? And he explains, well, I met this guy in the, in the b- b- bus, and he was down on his luck, so I sold him the turkey. And the other lawyers kind of went ashen. Oh, no. Oh, no. And according to Swindoll, they were all the lawyers. They were on that bus route all day looking for this guy. Never found him. Now, you can imagine, again, what this family in Dallas, even to this day, think of this lawyer guy. Oh, nothing good, I am sure. And uh, Swindoll says that this story illustrates this idea that we cannot be people who pass judgment based on face value because we don't know the, 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 the depth of the reality behind what has transpired. We, we can't go down that road. And uh, James starting to address that with us. 
He's saying there, there's, just, there's just a lot to it here. And so he gives them a, a, a case study in verse chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, uh, that's the, the scenario. What's, what's, James paints this this picture, now, this lets us know a couple things. Very, very early church, they had assemblies. Very, very early church, they must have had like first impression type people. Some sort of usher guys, they're trying to direct people to stuff. But look at the, the situation they end up in. Let me give you a little historical background that sets the pace for us. There were assemblies all over, of course. There was before electronic uh, communication, before print communication. So there were often assemblies for all kinds of things. And it was standard in all assemblies that there were seats of honor. There were seats where the people who were of value or of most value sat, where the spotlight was kind of turned on them. It was just normal. It was part of the, the culture. It was what was out there. And so it would have been assumed to in the church that that's the way it worked. Um, think for a second. I want you to pretend with me. Pretend that you are an African-American in 1825 on a cotton plantation in South Carolina. Sunday, long day. But that evening, the very nice white master has said, you guys could get together uh, and have a little church service if that's what you want to do. So there's this old rackety church building thing that was amidst where uh, the slaves had residence. And so you went. And uh, that evening, the place was full. Every 50, 60 slaves were there. All the seats were full. And all of a sudden, back door opens and in walks the slave owner, the white slave owner, the master. And he wants to come to church for whatever reason. Oh, the place is full. So you say, well, you can just stand up in the back. It probably is not what you say. There is a, 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 a culture, very bad culture, right? But what culture was that he sat in front. And so the front rows just emptied. And he knew to walk up front or people would take him up front and he sat down. Because, see, that was the place of honor. And, and every African-American in that, that place knew that that... The white man, the most important person, was supposed to sit right there. The white man knew that the most important person himself was supposed to sit there. That's just the way it was. Well, this is the same sort of deal. The, 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 the wealthy expected to sit in the seats of honor. Obviously, God had blessed them, not everybody else. It was a sign of, they thought it was a sign of God's um, approval. So God approves me and not y'all. I don't know what you have done, but he obviously proved it. Education-wise, I've been able to afford it. I'm the most, I'm the smartest. I'm the most intelligent. I'm the, the most blessed by God. Of course, if God's going to honor me, you should as well. And so this was the normal thing. You were just supposed to, to uh, sit in the seat of honor. That was the expectation. I don't know if you checked the, the news this week in sports. Football season is just kind of closed down in some ways. But this past week, quarterback for the Oakland Raiders, Derek Carr, was made the highest paid football player in the history of the NFL. Five-year contract, $125 million. Can you imagine? 
Well, he was in an interview, and one of the reporter guys said, you know, making a lot of money now. What's the first thing you're going to do with this money? And Derek Carr, without blinking an eye, he said, well, the first thing I'm going to do is tithe with it. He says, I've always tithed. When I had scholarship in college, I would tithe from my, my scholarship. That's what I'm first thing I'm going to do. And then, then I forgot whatever else he said. It didn't really matter. I think Chick-fil-A was, uh, was on his list. Um, <laughs> but I thought a couple of things. First of all, I thought... My new second favorite team is the Oakland Raiders because what a, what a cool testimony. Is that a cool testimony or what? Here you got the guy who is on the top of the heap of the USA cult NFL football, right? And he's talking to all these materialistic folk amidst a sea of prima donna folks saying, I am going to honor God with my money because that's a gift from him and so I'm going to honor him. I'm just thinking, yes! What a great testimony. This is the first thing I'm thinking. Second thing I'm thinking is, I wish Derek Carr went to my church. Oh, man. Can you, can you imagine? Think for just a minute. We got one offering, $12.5 million. That's an okay offering. What do you do? At 12 point, we could do some things. We? we could build a really cool children's wing. I mean, I mean, we're talking, we want to invest in the next generation. We want to build, we know we need something. We're going to build that. And... We're going to do something with our back 40. Who knows what? Maybe walking trails, community park. Uh, uh, oh, who knows? All kinds of stuff. You can do one of these big splash park thingies for the kids. We could do some really cool stuff there. And we could also hire some much-needed staff. We've been working short for some time. And, though, we could also invest in several more. Remember new homes? Remember, you know, remember new? We've got two homes in uh, Thailand, two in Kenya. We've got a fifth one in, Cam- in uh, Myanmar, which is uh, designed to protect kids who are at risk for being sold into the sex slavery industry. How many more homes could we open? We could do some work there. And we could become a major, major contributor to the Great Commission Fund, World Missions, bringing the gospel to places that they've never heard about Jesus. We could do some major, major stuff. 12.5 million. That's all right. Unless you begin thinking, oh, Mark is such a materialist. I'm just liking this T-shirt I saw one time. It said uh, on the front, I've been rich and I've been poor. And on the back it said, trust me, rich is better. I think that that person may be onto something. What we could do with 12.5 million, right? Great, great stuff. Now, now, now here's the scenario. You are ushering right here at First Alliance Church. You are ushering one Sunday and for whatever, you're on first impressions. You're not on first impressions. They, they brought you in and you're going to usher. And so your part of your job is to help people find seats. And you read in the paper that week that Derek Carr, for whatever reason, wants to make Erie his home. So he's, he's built a big place here somewhere, and, and this is, he's looking for a church. And so you're there, the, the usher, and, and you, you hear someone coming up on your right. You pay no attention to him because out of your eye on your left, you see Derek Carr coming in with his wife, Heather, and they stand right next to you, and you see the diamonds around her neck and on her fingers and her ears and her bracelet. And you didn't know that they had diamonds that big. And you realize who this is, and you realize he wants to tithe off of $125 million. And, and oh, oh, man, oh, man, he's waiting for you because you're the usher. you got to seat him. And so you start looking around. Oh, where do I seat this guy? Way up in the front. Just it's, it's your lucky day, as it were, as Providence would have it, because way up in the front, right next to Dr. Billingsworth, 
There are two seats. Now, Dr. Billingsworth, very successful man. Do- Dr. Billingsworth, he's, a, he's a, a major player in Fortune 100 business. I mean, he's just a, a credible guy. But not only that, not only does he have impeccable people skills, but he's a godly man. And whoever sits next to him, he is going to invest in, he's going to care for, he's going to love in an educated way. He's going to make this guy feel part of the place. And you're thinking, that's, oh, I know where I'm seeing these guys. And then the smell comes, you look over to your right, the guy who got here just before Derek Carr, and it's like a homeless man. And you're wondering, how did this guy get in here? And you're looking at his clothes, and they don't, they don't match, obviously. He's been wearing them for a couple of decades, it looks like, and they're just stained and filthy, and there's no... God, why didn't he brush his... Why didn't he take care of himself? A little hygiene before you go to church would be nice. And he's mumbling to himself, and you're wondering, oh, is, is this guy all there? Is maybe he's dangerous. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. And, and you're getting ready to go seat the cars in front of Dr. Billingsworth, and a little voice in the back of your head, this guy was here first. What would you do? What would Jesus do? Maybe that's a better question, right? What would Jesus do with that? Well, that's what uh, James is, is, is addressing. I grew up in small churches, little churches, less than 100 people, uh, good places. But there's some dynamics in small, real small places. Um, usually there's a couple, maybe two, who are kind of like the Daddy Warbucks of the church. They're the ones who their offering kind of keeps the place afloat, kind of pays the pastor's salary, keeps the lights on, keeps the insurance paid. Well, when that person makes a suggestion, guess what you do? You, you do it. That's right. When, when that person has an idea, meanwhile, if someone else had the same idea, you'd shoot it down in a second. But, but here... Um, that's a great idea, because to not means you're going to shut the doors of the church. So you just we'll just have to endure this guy for a while until we build up. I guess I was at, at my years in a church where a uh, small church. Um, this gal that went to our church, she was the best musician in the church. She played an incredible piano. She played an incredible organ. Not only that, but she organized the entire Christian ed department of the church from, from cradle all the way through, through adults. She chose the material. She got the teachers. She trained the teachers. Her husband, who was one of the best teachers in the church, he organized our midweek children's program. These guys we're putting in like 100 hours a week, it, we would think, totally free. Well, when they suggested something, guess what we did? We knew if we offended them, we'd be shutting down a lot of programming. We could not afford to pay for that. There's, we, everything would suffer. Uh, this is things you wrestle with and you struggle with. And what, what James is saying, that's not the way it works in the church. I understand in the, in, the, in the world that's the way it works. It's not the way it works in the church. Whole different deal. And what he mentions in, in verse 4, this is what he says. He says, if you do these things, if you, if you give credence to the folk who have the, the rings and the money and the, the, the gifts and the know-how and the power, the people who could hurt you, remember in the small first century church, the guy with the money and the rings... He wielded the power in the, the area, and he could, could be life and death. I mean, this was, James says, if you do that, 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Uh, in our culture, we elect our judges, right? Because we think they're going to be fair. We think that they're wise. They can discern. And so a judge would weigh out all the evidence and pass a verdict and make a, a judgment. And what James is saying, when you choose to be favorite towards somebody, based on their externals, what you've just shown us is that you set yourself up as a judge and your heart is evil. Now, those are strong words. We'd think, no, 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 I'm not being evil. I'm just being prudent. I'm just being wise. I mean, this is, James says, no, 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 don't deceive yourself. You're being evil. Because that's the kind of stuff that goes on in the, out in the world. But the one place in this world where that can't happen is in the church. It just can't. He's talking, discrimination is, is bad all over, right? Now, on every, every front. But he's talking specifically about discrimination in the church. It can't go on in the church. Apostle Paul is going to reiterate the same sort of thing in Galatians 3. Paul says this. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Now, the Jews, of course, thought they were the chosen race. They were the right race. They were the race that God liked more than anybody else. The Greeks, they thought that when Zeus created them, he created them special. Everybody else was made out of mud. That's what they thought. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Of course, the females are major second-class citizens. He says there's no divisions. There's, there's, well, think of us. Economics, we discriminate on economics. Uh, someone comes in with an 87 Pontiac or someone comes in with a Bentley. Well, There's a big difference how we think about them. We, we discriminate on education. How much do you have and where do you have it from? I got a Ph.D. from Bob's Community College or I got a Ph.D. from Harvard. A big difference. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Harvard people know that. That's, that's, that's right. We discriminate sometimes based on race. We discriminate sometimes on the other side based on baggage. Oh, you're not divorced, are you? You're not, you didn't claim bankruptcy. If you had to go through AA, you're not one of those immigrant people, are you? I've heard about those folk. Where my, where my kids? You're not one of those. We discriminate. And he says, James says, Paul says, in the church, at the foot of the cross, we are all stripped and we are all broken sinners. There is, we are all equal. Outside, yeah, the stuff goes on that goes on. But here, whole different deal. He said, so don't bring your stuff into the church. Guard your heart. Wipe it out of your heart because it's in there. Just you can't transpire here. The one place where people need freedom, where they need grace, where they need to understand who he is, where they don't need the labels, where they don't need to be treated based on the externals, is in the church. That's what Paul's getting at with this. That's what James is, that's what James is, is, is saying. That there is in the church no uh, old money, new money, no money. There's no IQs of 185 or 65. There, 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 there's, there, there's no white or black or Hutu or Tutsi or the, in the church. All those are gone. The foot of Christ, all those are gone. And James says, you need to live accordingly. Because it's so subtle, you don't even see it. 
We don't even think it's, it's there. James says, oh, it's there. You notice that what he talks about here, one of the, this illustration, I think this is fascinating, is he deals with the whole dress code issue, doesn't he? Deals with the dress code stuff. Now, I grew up in, in a, a culture and a tradition where we wore our best to church. And we were told that that's how you honor God. You wear your best to church. That's not a bad tradition. Please don't hear me wrong. That's not a bad tradition, but we just have to keep in mind that it's not a biblical tradition. It's not unbiblical, but it's, don't get that. You don't get that in scripture. Show me a dress. There's no dress code here. Matter of fact, early church, everybody was in poverty. They came wearing what they wore all week. They didn't have multiple sets of clothes. They didn't have, they didn't have a best. They, they wore with their pastors. Most of them were not paid. They would just came in from the fields and they're going to go as well. There was no wearing your best. It just is not in scripture. Now here's the deal. Please, please. If in fact you grew up in a tradition where we wear our, our best, you need to feel that you will not be judged because this discrimination thing cuts both ways. That you will not be judged because you live out your convictions here. I, I hope that that's true. That you, 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 by your faith in God, you honor Him if that's the way you're to honor Him. That you do that and that you not face any kind of repercussions here. On the, the same handle, if you did not have that tradition, and if doing that is just going to be like putting on airs for you, again, there's no, we're not going to put words in God's mouth and say this is what God said because He didn't say it. And so you dress in a way that's comfortable. There is one dress code that we find in Scripture. Deals for the church and deals for out of the church. One dress code, and that is modesty. Maybe this is not a bad thing to say with summer kicking in, right? Um, just dress in such a way that doesn't draw attention to you. Draw, dress in such a way that, that will protect you and protect other people. But that's the only dress code we see in Scripture. Uh, James points this out. He doesn't hammer the, the, the rich guy. He says the guy comes with a gold ring on his finger. Actually, that infers many rings on his fingers. It was a way to demonstrate. Sometimes you would have multiple gold rings on. You could rent the rings, actually, to put on your fingers. It was a way that you, you showed your wealth. It was a way of, of status, of your power. He doesn't hammer the guy for wearing those. He doesn't hammer the guy for wearing his jewel-studded robe. No. Oh. He doesn't hammer the guy for being shabby, dressing shabby either. What he does hammer is anybody who passes judgment on somebody for how they, they dress, for their externals, for what they drive, for where they went to school, for their, their skin color, for their, for their education, for where they've been, for their, for their baggage. That's what he hammers. So we gotta make sure that we're not there. And there's, there's reasons why he does that. In verse five, well let's just start verse one actually. I think this is the first reason it is, is that a spirit of discrimination contradicts our Lord. Right? Verse one, he says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James is saying, discrimination Judging people on externals, specifically honoring those who are uh, on the wealthy side, goes against who you claim to follow. Think of Jesus for a minute. I mean, you know Jesus' genealogy, Matthew 1? You know, Jesus, Jesus' genealogy reads like a who's who of, of losers and sinners. He's got all kinds. He's got prostitutes in there. He's got uh, immigrants in there. He's got uh, people who've been hurt in there. He's got folk who've tried but failed in there. He's got... 
the whole spectrum. He's got kings. He's got it all in there. But don't take out the names of, of people that you might not like to be in Jesus' blood because they're there. So he says it, 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 it contradicts who he was, but it also contradicts what he did. Think of Jesus. He has no problem hanging with the, the rich, the wealthy, the educated. He can hang with Nicodemus and Zacchaeus and Matthew. Feels comfortable there. He's in control there. It's not an issue. But more often we see him in scripture uh, touching the lepers, the people that everyone else shunned, to embracing the blind man. And everybody knew that the reason why you were blind is because God did, did that to you. It's a judgment. You've earned it somehow. You did something. We don't know what, but you, you've, you've earned it. Jesus embraced those guys. Jesus protects the repentant woman caught in adultery. And Jesus is going to become friends with a, a, a demoniac of the Gerasenes kind of thing. Uh, if you're following after Jesus, James says, you'll end up reflecting him. Can you imagine uh, somebody comes to church one Sunday? And uh, this, uh, this guy's an immigrant. Uh, his parents kind of got shady reputation. Uh, he's kind of been living in poverty for quite some time and all the stuff that comes with that. His reputation, some say he's crazy. Others say, no, he's just demonized. Uh, controversy follows this guy. He walks into church. You're looking at him. You're the usher person. You're going, oh, for crying out loud. We don't need this right now. Uh, please go somewhere else. You have just turned away Jesus, right? So, so spirit of discrimination contradicts following after Jesus. It follows, contradicts following after your Lord. It also contradicts the character of God. In verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich and faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Uh, God's character, God likes poor people. Uh, our love can be wishy-washy sometimes, right? Our love can be a little bit fickle. We kind of love, but if you're neutral, we can endure you, and if you give me stuff, then all the better, right? But God's love's not that way. There's there's a poem that, that talks about this. I don't know if this has ever won a Pulitzer Prize or not. It should have. Uh, it's a poetical masterpiece. It's called Paul's Girl. So listen to this for a second. It says, Paul's girl is rich and haughty. My girl is poor as clay. Paul's girl is young and pretty. My girl looks like a bale of hay. Paul's girl is smart and clever. My girl is dumb, but good. But would I trade my girl for Paul's? You bet your life I would. <laughs> it shows us. <laughs> I love that. Fickle, fickle. We're going to choose based on how good a person is for me and what I can get and what I, God does not do that. God, the, in um, uh, 1 Samuel, it's a fascinating story. You know, you know this story. Jesse, go, or Samuel, goes, is looking for a king for Israel. And he goes, he's been told to go to Jesse, check out his sons. And so he goes to, to, to Jesse to look for his sons. And he says that when he's there, looking for a king from Israel, he, he comes across the firstborn son. This guy's name is Eliab. He's a tall guy, 6'3", 260 pounds. He looks like Hulk Hogan a little bit. He's got the Flavio hair thing going. And, and Samuel's impressed. Samuel goes, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. I mean, this guy's impressive. But what does God say? First, it says, do not look 
on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You've got this. Paul is saying the same sort of thing. In 1 Corinthians 1, he's talking to believers, right? He says, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. It says that Queen Elizabeth was staring at this verse and says, I'm so grateful for the letter M. Because it doesn't say God didn't choose any of noble birth. But he didn't choose many. Because God's not, and there's different reasons. I wish we, could, we had the time to get into. But it's the poor that are gravitating to the gospel, and he is embracing wide open. So when we have a discriminatory heart, it's against our Lord, it's against the character of God, it's also against logic. It's contradictory to logic straight up. Verse 6, 7, it says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Now, again, he's not bashing rich folk per se. The cultural thing going on here. Uh, the uh, Jewish people, church is mostly Jewish at this point. And the Jewish people, they could either have life okay or they could choose Christ. If they chose Christ, they were suddenly found themselves unemployed, without protection, without community, uh, waist deep in poverty. So if you were a Jewish person, generally speaking, generally speaking, and you had means, most probably it meant you denied Jesus. The, the rich, there's all kinds of records on this, uh, used their power, used their, their wealth uh, to take the poor to court, to take their land, to take their, their rights. And so the, the wealthy, the reason why they were wealthy and the reason why they increased in their wealth is they were taking it from the poor folk. And so what James is saying is just think for a minute. It's appeal to logic, to common sense, which is not from hell. God gave common sense. And sometimes we just need to be reminded of common sense because we forget that sometimes. James says, these are the folk that are against you. But they're not just against you. They're against your God. Why are you honoring them again? Help me understand. Why are you doing that again? You are trying to hug a porcupine, right? You are trying to hug a cactus. It's going to hurt you. Cut it out. It makes no sense. He goes on to say discrimination is a little bit deeper than that. Discrimination violates the law of, of love. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, royal law is law given by the king. This is it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you fulfill that, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Now, we don't want to think of it as sin. James says, no, no. James is in our face. No, no. You're committing sin. And you're convicted by the law as transgressors. Well, James, I'm keeping most of it. I'm pretty good on most things. James says, you, you've broken it. Because whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Uh, maybe James is remembering back to when his older brother was asked by the scribe, what is the greatest law? 
hundreds of laws in the Old Testament. Which is the greatest one, Jesus? And Jesus um, quotes two. He doesn't just quote one. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6. He says, well, the first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19. He says, and the second one is just like it. That means it's, 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 it's as important. You love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is quoting. And maybe he's saying, you guys are all believers. James is talking to his church. You guys claim that you got this vertical love thing going on with God. That's wonderful. But if the horizontal one is not in line, you're in trouble. You're in tr- then he's going to tell us in verse 12 and 13 the kind of trouble that they're in. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. I, I, I love this. This has got so much meat here. It says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says, outside the, 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 the community of Christ, we can try to suppress uh, partiality, favoritism. We can, we can, because politically incorrect it, so we can try to suppress it. But still, in our hearts, it's there. The only thing that's going to give you freedom, the only thing that's going to give you liberty is, is the law, it's the word of God. He says, but, but keep this in mind. One day, you will stand to be judged according to this law. And no one can say, especially no one in here this morning can say, I didn't know it. It says it straight up that don't commit partiality because if you do, you're breaking the law to love your neighbors yourself and one day you'll be judged by it. It's pretty straight up and clear. He says, if, if you, if you, if you choose to not deal with this, if you choose to have this mindset that says, well, it's just not me. It's, I don't have this problem anymore. Other people, way back when I was little, not anymore. James is saying, you're deceiving yourself. You're going to hurt the church. Let me uh, wrap this up. Two, two real quick usher stories. Craig Grishel, a pastor in Oklahoma. He said that uh, pretty big church. But one point he was speaking. He went on a speaking uh, deal, this, this small church. And he got there early, and he was in the office with a couple of the uh, elders, talking about you know when he comes up and when he's going to pre- preach and all this stuff. And um, the phone rang, and he says that one of the elders picked up the phone, and he could tell from the conversation, even though he was only hearing part of it, that on the other side was a, a gal, a gal who uh, was somewhat hesitant and was questioning when the services were, who, who was thinking she might be interested in God. She had gone through some tough stuff, and maybe God could help her. And, and could she come to church, she asked. And the other said, oh, absolutely, here's the time, blah, 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 blah. And so he just, okay, they just went on. Uh, Grishel said 45 minutes later, before the service started, he was by the front door. There was a greeter there, and, and he could see this gal walking up the sidewalk towards the front of the church. And he could tell that, that she was out of place. She was kind of looking around. Am I in the right place? I, I, I don't know. And, and, and as she came in, the, the usher opened the door and let her in. Uh, but you could tell the way she was dressed. She'd had a rough time. And she'd probably been sleeping in her clothes for a while, and she was, her hair was disheveled. And, and uh, the, the usher looked at her and said, Excuse me, ma'am, we wear our best when we come to, to honor Jesus. So I would encourage you to go home and change and just put on something to, that will honor him. Second usher story. 
I, I believe that this is attributed to Chuck Smith. If, if you're not familiar with Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapels. Uh, Chuck, before he was the Chuck Smith, he, he young pastor, church in Southern California, uh, Sunday evening service. It was, it was packed out, and everybody was dressed to the nines. But, you know, Southern California, you had a guy come walking in with cut-off shorts and a tank top, uh, sandals, maybe a little bit high. They weren't sure. But, but he came in, wanted to go to church. But it was, place was packed. Well, he came walking right, didn't wait for anyone, came walking right down the front aisle, came right to the very front and sat on the floor. And the, the head usher saw this, this dignified senior citizen guy had been around for a while. And so he chases down the front aisle for this guy. And he comes down the front aisle and he comes to where this guy's sitting and he stops for just a minute and looks at this guy. And then he takes off his coat. And he takes off his tie. Unbuttons the top button. Rolls his sleeves up, kicks off his shoes, and sits down right next to this guy to have church. What church would you rather be a part of? What church do you think Jesus would approve of? And let me ask you, what church do you want this place to be? I don't know if I've got this power, but I'm going to take it anyhow. Um, today, I'm going to knight everybody, but I'm going to knight you as an official uh, member, ex-officio member of the First Impressions team. And so your job, if you're this is your first Sunday, don't worry about it, you get off. Everybody else, you're on the First Impressions team starting right now. Uh, and your job, my job, is whoever God sends us. Uh, regardless of what they're wearing, regardless of what's going on on the, on the outside, when we look into their eyes, we know that there is nobody, nobody whose eyes we looked into that, that God doesn't love deeply. There's nobody that Jesus didn't die for. If he sends us somebody, our job is to make sure that, that we have communicated to them a welcomeness. We have communicated to them love. If they decide to not come back, okay, but may it not be. May it not be because they were judged because of their hair, because of what they wore, because of, of, of how they looked, because of some external thing. James would say, show no partiality in the church. It's important that we seek to live that out. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.